Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. That little baby in the manger would grow to be the most powerful preacher who ever lived. And we find here in Matthew chapter 5 the most famous sermon of our Lord Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Unfortunately, all indicators suggest that America is becoming increasingly dishonest with each new generation. The Josephson Institute for Ethics publishes the report card on the ethics of American youth, and they recently reported that 93% of American youth admit to lying to their parents about a really important issue in the last year, 93%. That's an increase of 12% in a decade. They admitted to lying to their teachers, again, 93%, another 12% increase in a decade. 46% admitted to lying in order to save money, an almost 30% increase in a decade. 37% said they would be willing to lie on a job application in order to get a better job, an increase of 32% in a 10-year period. And the problem is not just with youth. Another study found that Americans on average tell 11 lies every week. Another study found that 60% of Americans cannot carry on a conversation for 10 minutes without telling at least one lie. And tragically, this lack of honesty and integrity is not just something that we find in our culture at large. We encounter it even within the walls of our churches and Christian institutions. Some of you will know the name of Willie McLaren, who was a rising star in the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. He had served as the pastor of several different churches. He had served as special assistant to the executive director of the Tennessee Baptist Board of Missions and ultimately became the vice president for great Commission Relations and Mobilization for the Executive Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. After the resignation of Dr. Ronnie Floyd, he was tapped to become interim president and CEO 
of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, which ma manages the business of our convention during those 363 days of the year between our annual two-day meeting. Largest Protestant denomination in the United States. He would likely have become permanent president and CEO of the executive committee of the SBC overseeing a billion dollar budget had it not been for the fact that the search committee did due diligence and they performed a simple background check and they found out that although he claimed to have served in the military for six years and been a special advisor to intelligence agencies, he'd never actually served in the military at all. And although he claimed to have degrees, bachelor's, master's, and doctorate from Hood Seminary, Duke University, and uh, North Carolina Central University, he actually did not have degrees from any of those institutions had, and had never even attended most of them. In other words, the diplomas that hung on the wall of his office were forgeries. And he had lied in his resume for decade after decade after decade. And this is just one of many examples that to our shame could be given this morning to describe the lack of integrity and dishonesty that characterizes even many people who stand behind pulpits or Sunday school class lecterns or serve as the highest ranking leaders in denominational service. We encounter dishonesty everywhere. How does that happen? Well, often it's a literary flourish or an exaggeration, and then the, a lie has to be told to mask the exaggeration, and then another lie has to be told to cover that lie. And before you know it, you are what our society calls a pathological liar, a bold-faced liar who finds it easier to lie than to tell even the most convenient truths. And the Lord Jesus Christ calls his disciples, every single one, to absolute honesty and integrity. And that honesty and integrity is vital to the fulfillment of the church's mission. Because if the people of this world cannot depend on what we say in our resumes to be true, why in the world would they believe what we say from the pulpit to be true? Why in the world would they believe what we say when we sit down with them and share our personal testimony of the transforming power of the gospel and the forgiving love of Jesus Christ to be true? It is imperative that we be characterized by honesty and integrity so that our testimony matters. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus teaches that his disciples cannot justify dishonesty through legal loopholes. He begins by saying, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
Now, we've seen that Christ is challenging again and again in this section of the Sermon on the Mount called the, the antitheses, the false interpretation of the Old Testament by the rabbis of his day. And this is another example of that. These words, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, are not a direct quotation of any Old Testament text. It's kind of a paraphrase that conglomerates several different Old Testament passages like Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 3, Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. But it puts a spin on the verses as it paraphrases. The first statement in the Greek text literally means you must not commit perjury. That's the kind of oath that's being described in verse 33. But that, of course, could lead to the implication that it's okay to lie when you're not in a court of law with your hand on the Bible, swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. My point is the paraphrase has a loophole built into it that can protect dishonesty. We see the very same thing in the second half of the paraphrase. The words to the Lord are shifted out of their normal position in the Greek text, which would be at the end of the clause to the very beginning of the clause. That places enormous emphasis on that particular phrase. And the implication is that you are to keep the commitments that you make to the Lord God, but implicitly Him only. You're free to break your word to other people as may be convenient. Again and again, the rabbis twisted and distorted the ethical teaching of the Old Testament in order to justify their own sinful actions, and they appear to be doing so here as well. The Old Testament doesn't just call for honesty and integrity when you're in a court of law with your hand on the Bible. The Old Testament law doesn't just call for us to be honest when we make a vow to the Almighty God. The Old Testament said in Zechariah 8, 16 through 17, these are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Do not love perjury, for I hate all this. God hates it when his people do not speak the truth. Malachi 3.5 says, I, the Lord, will come to you in judgment and will be ready to witness against those who swear falsely. And here's my point. The Old Testament was clear that we're to be characterized by honesty and integrity in every aspect of our life. Every word that we speak must be dependable and reliable. But the rabbis of Jesus' day excused all kinds of practices that the ethics of the Old Testament clearly forbade. The Lord Jesus contemned, condemned technical honesty that masks real deception. Christ goes on Say, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And then he gives several examples 
of the kind of oath that was taken in the first century world that his disciples should abandon. He says, don't take an oath by heaven. Don't take an oath by the earth. Don't take an oath by Jerusalem. And don't take an oath by your head. Now, why are those specific examples so important? Because all of those are examples of non-binding oaths in the teaching of the first century Jewish rabbis. People could make an oath of this kind, leading others to believe that they were making a solemn promise when in fact the oath maker had no intention of keeping his word at all because technically these were non-binding oaths. We see a similar thing in Matthew 23, 16 through 22. There Christ says, Woe to you, blind guides. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees who say, Whoever takes an oath by the sanctuary, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by his oath. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? Whoever takes an oath by the altar, you say, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on the altar is bound by his oath. Blind people, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and everything on it. And the one who takes an oath by the sanctuary takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Now, what's Christ doing here? Well, he's arguing that the rabbis of his day had an intricate system in which they distinguished binding and non-binding oaths. And their argument was in order for an oath to be binding, you had to swear by Almighty God. But in first century Jewish law, it was illegal to speak the name of God. The divine name was to be kept secret. It was to be spoken according to the rabbis only by the high priest on the Day of Atonement performing the sacrificial ritual in the Holy of Holies or by a local priest that was pronouncing the priestly blessing of number six. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. For any other person at any other time in any other place to speak the name of God was considered an act of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death. So here was the problem. You had to take an oath by God, but you weren't permitted to speak God's name. And so the rabbis had developed an uh, elaborate list of approved substitutions for the Hebrew divine name that could be used in making oaths. An example was the substitution Aleph Dalet, the first two letters of the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, a reference to the Lord God. Or the letters yod Hey, which were the first two letters of the Hebrew divine name. 
Uh, other approved substitutions were Shaddai, Sabaoth, the merciful and gracious, him that is long-suffering and of great kindness, and so forth. And here's the deal. If you made an oath using one of the substitutions for the divine name that was on the rabbi's approved list, your oath was binding. But if you used another substitution, no matter how common it was, your oath was non-binding. You weren't obligated to keep your word. And the examples that the Lord Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 fall into those same categories. For example, Christ says, don't take an oath by heaven or by the earth. The Mishnah says, if a man says, I adjure, command, or bind you, they are liable. But if he says by heaven or by earth, they are exempt. The rabbi Maimonides would later argue, if any swear by heaven, by earth, by the sun, etc., even though the mind of the swearer would be under these words to swear by him who created these things, this is not an oath. Same thing applied to swearing by Jerusalem. Rabbi said, if you swear toward Jerusalem, that is turning toward wherever the city is located and prostrating yourself as if in worship of God in the Holy of Holies, then your oath was binding. But if you just said, I swear by Jerusalem, your oath didn't count. Rabbi said the same thing about swearing by the head. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But here's the point. In the system of the rabbis, you could easily mislead people into thinking you were making a solemn promise, a solemn vow, when in fact you had no intention of keeping your word and no legal obligation to do so. This reminds me of an experience I had in the first grade. I was out on the playground and this little girl came skipping up to me and she told me a whopper of a tale. And I gave her that look like, yeah. And she kept insisting and kept insisting and kept insisting. And so finally I said, okay, okay, I believe you. And then she said, no, silly. And she pulled out from behind her back her crossed fingers. And she told me something I didn't know before. It's the ethical principle that it is perfectly fine to lie as long as you have your fingers crossed behind your back. Well, the rabbis were playing this kind of game as well. And it's not just something that we encounter on the playground in elementary school. For eight years, I was the vice president of a Christian college. And... The president called all of the VPs into a secret session one day, failing to invite one of the other vice presidents, so we knew he was probably in some kind of trouble. And he explained the scenario in which he had taken some action that he knew was going to infuriate this other vice president, and he was trying to find a way to avoid making the man mad. And as he thought out loud about what the wisest approach was, he said, I've got the solution. 
He said, what we need to do is be deceitful without being dishonest. I said, excuse me? He said, I think we need to be deceitful without being dishonest. And with all of my great tact and diplomacy, I said, how in the world can you do that? And he said, well, you know, what we're going to do is invite the man into the room and we will have orchestrated this conversation so that we won't outright lie, but what he overhears will give him the impression that it's the exact opposite of what actually occurred. I said, I've got a better idea. Why don't we invite him in the room? And if you're not willing to do it, I'll do it. Well, I'll look him in the eye and I'll just tell him the truth. This kind of conduct wasn't surprising. Uh, the, the man's favorite Bible verse that he quoted more than any other was Matthew 10, 16, which says, be wise as serpents. And he terribly misinterpreted that text. So it was always about being cunning and conniving and deceptive, but he thought you could do all that without being dishonest. The Lord Jesus is very, very clear. There is no way to be deceitful without being dishonest. His disciples are obligated to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Christ goes on in verse 36 to explain that many of the oath formulas that people used in his day, and I might add in ours, are irreverent and blasphemous. He says, do not take an oath by your head. Now we know from examples in the writings of the rabbis that an oath by your head meant, may my head be chopped off if I don't keep my promise to you. The rabbis referred to it as taking a vow by the life of the head. May I be decapitated if I do not fulfill my word. This would be similar to our American promise where we promise something and then we say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. If I don't keep my word to you, may I be struck dead and may a sharp object pierce my eye. The Christ says, you have no authority to swear by your head or by the life of your head. And the reason for that is you are not the master of your own destiny and you don't have sovereignty over your life and your death. And Christ proves that by saying, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, oh, yes, I can. You know, I can go to Walgreens and buy whatever product they're using today. And that's not what Christ is talking about. He, what he means is you can't make your hair grow black or white. Typical first century Jewish person would have dark hair as well as dark skin. But think of that teenager who wants so desperately to have the respect of the aged. And so he just wishes, wishes, wishes he could make his hair and his beard grow white. Doesn't matter how much he strives and strains, not going to happen. Or think about that old person 
who longs for the days of their youth. And they try so hard to make their hair grow black again, or just grow again. <laughs> but no matter how hard you try, it's not going to happen. Why? Because we are not masters of our own destinies. We can't control the aging process in our bodies. And Christ's point is, if you can't even control the aging process, why in the world do you think you have authority over your own life? He says, no, when you swear that way, you are assuming a divine prerogative. You are putting yourself in the place of God. God alone is sovereign over life and death, and you have no right to that royal throne. Such acts are acts of blasphemy. And Christ says they are unbefitting of the Christian disciple. And Christ goes on in verse 37 to teach that his disciples should be characterized by such honesty and integrity that oaths in everyday life become unnecessary. Now, I want to be clear about this before we go any further. There are some Christian groups who think that a Christian should never take an oath, even in a court of law, even an oath of service uh, in government office and that kind of thing. That's not what Christ is talking about here. The oath examples he gives are the kind of oaths that are used in everyday life, not in those very solemn and important occasions. The Lord Jesus actually testifies under oath in his own trial before the Sanhedrin council. That's not what he's talking about here. When Christ says, don't swear at all, let your word simply be yes or no, He's saying that we should be characterized by such honesty and integrity that every statement, every insinuation, every implication is credible to others and all oath-taking in everyday life becomes unnecessary. Now, there were some other first-century Jewish teachers that held a similar view. You've probably heard of the Essenes, that community responsible for the preservation of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran and other places. Josephus, himself a first century Jew, said that the Essenes avoided all oaths except the oath that they took upon joining the Essene group. He said, consequently, you could trust the word of an Essene more than the oath of an ordinary man. Philo, a first century rabbi from Alexandria, Egypt, said, to not swear at all is the best course and most profitable to life, well suited to those who have been taught to speak the truth so well on every occasion that every word is regarded as if an oath. To swear truly is only, as people say, a second best approach for the mere fact of a person swearing casts suspicion on the trustworthiness of the man. Have you ever been around a person who's constantly having to say, I swear to you, or even worse? When you hear them constantly insisting on their own truthfulness, it waves a flag of suspicion, doesn't it? 
Why do they have to insist so adamantly that they're telling the truth now? Doesn't that seem to imply that it's not their ordinary way of life? But while the Lord Jesus' teaching has some similarity to the teaching of the Essenes and of the Rabbi Philo here, his teaching goes beyond that of the Essenes and Philo. Because Christ does not just advise his followers to refrain from oath-making in everyday life and to simply tell the truth consistently, moment by moment. He commands his disciples to do so. This isn't tips for a better life. This isn't advice for Christian living. These are the commands of our God and Savior. And we are to follow them. We're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. That means we shouldn't say yes. We shouldn't affirm what is actually contrary to the truth. And we shouldn't say no when we should say yes. We shouldn't deny what we know to be true. Our yes should really mean yes, and our no should really mean no. When Christian morality was more dominant in our nation, legal affairs were a whole lot simpler than they are today. Contracts could be made with a simple handshake and a look in the eye. And that was more reliable than lengthy, notarized legal documents. We used to say back then of those who were completely trustworthy, his word is his bond. And Christ says that although that may not longer be true in our culture at large, it should be true of those who follow him in the Christian church. Our word should be our bond. We should speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Christ concludes by warning us of the origin of all deception. He said, anything more than this comes from evil. Now, the grammatical construction here in the Greek text uh, is admittedly ambiguous. It is an articular adjective, and because of overlapping grammatical forms, it could be either uh, masculine or it could be neuter. The translators of the ESV have assumed that it's neuter, and evil refers to the principle of evil, evil in general. Uh, but I'm convinced that the form is actually the masculine form, and it refers not to a principle but to a person. And what Christ is saying is, if you are characterized by this dishonesty that prevails in the culture of our day, then you are under the influence of the evil one. That is Satan, the devil himself. Why? Well, how does the Lord Jesus describe Satan in John 8, 44? He refers to Satan as the father of lies. 
Why? Well, it's because he's the master of subtlety who can tell half-truths with persuasive power and whose deception led to all humanity's downfall in the Garden of Eden. And what Christ is saying is when you embrace this low ethic that justifies dishonesty and deception with technical explanations and legal loopholes, you are showing that you are under the influence of the father of all lies, the devil himself. One of the principles of the Sermon on the Mount is that your character and behavior reveals who your spiritual father is. Christ says in Matthew 5, 9, that peacemakers will be recognized as the sons of God. Why? Because we're manifesting the character of our heavenly father, the God of peace. He'll teach uh, later on in Matthew chapter 5 that when we love our enemies, we show that we are sons and daughters of the heavenly father. Why? Because the heavenly father loves his enemies too. And displays that love in remarkable ways. When we love our enemies, we are displaying our resemblance to him. We are showing the principle of spiritual genetics, like father, like son, like parent, like child. And so when Christ says here, when your life is characterized by dishonesty and, and deception, it comes from the evil one. He's saying, if this were a paternity test, you just failed. You just revealed that your character is more like that of the devil than it is the holy God. Why? Well, because Psalm 31.5 and Isaiah 65.16 three times describe the Lord God as the God of truth. Satan, the father of lies. God, the God of truth. 1 John 4, 6 refers to the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer as the spirit of truth. And so when we are deceiving others, misleading others, lying to others, we are acting more like children of the evil one than like children of the Holy One. Deception doesn't just come from Satan's influence. It comes from a corrupt, depraved heart. Do you remember Matthew 15, 19, where the Lord Jesus said, From the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thieves, get this, false testimonies and blasphemies. But does Jesus describe his own disciples as those who have an evil heart? No, that's the description of fallen humanity before redemption. But when Christ describes his own disciples in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Here's my point. We are empowered to tell the truth. Because we are sons and daughters of the God of all truth, and he has imparted his character to us, and we are empowered to tell the truth because our evil hearts that were prone to false testimony have been replaced by pure hearts that love the truth and are devoted to the truth. 
This is the fulfillment of that great new covenant promise. Ezekiel said, God's going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to put a new heart within you. And then he's going to fill that heart with the Holy Spirit who will compel you from within to do what is right, holy, and good. I know that telling the truth is sometimes hard. Telling the truth is sometimes painful. Telling the truth is sometimes costly. Because we are the sons and daughters of the God of all truth. And because the spirit of truth indwells us, we are empowered to tell the truth and we must tell the truth. And I hope that you will tell the truth, not only for the sake of your own souls, but for the sake of the souls of others. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is described multiple times by the Apostle Paul as the word of truth. And I'm afraid that one of the reasons that so many people are walking away from church today, one of the reasons so many people are renouncing their faith in Jesus Christ is because they do not see a commitment to truthfulness among the people of God, and that has cast doubt on the very word of truth itself. And there is no greater tragedy than that. The gospel is true, and it is our one and only hope. Don't let your lies rob others of that one true hope. What is that word of truth? It's the good news that although all of us are sinners and deserve the judgment of a holy God for the things that we've done, the things that we've said, the things that we've thought, for the good things that we failed to do, say, and think, we deserve God's judgment. And we are too sinful ourselves to ever earn God's favor and escape by our efforts the judgment of God that every sinner rightly deserves. We could never keep a list of commandments long enough. We could never attend church frequently enough. We could never read our Bible enough times to merit God's mercy and forgiveness. But God loves sinners so much that he wrapped himself in human flesh and was born as a little baby in Bethlehem so that he could live the perfect life that we cannot live, and then go to the cross and be punished for our sins in our place so that we can escape the punishment we rightly deserve. Because Jesus bore the holy wrath that our sinful lives have deserved, we can escape the punishment we deserve. We can spend eternity with the Lord in paradise. Every sin we have ever committed or ever will commit can be erased from the sight of the heavenly judge so that when he slams his gavel down in judgment, we can be pronounced blameless, not guilty, free from accusation. 
And not only does he forgive our sins, separating it as far from us as the East is from the West, he transforms our lives. He makes mean and bitter people into those who are kind and loving. And he takes deceitful and dishonest people and turns them into people whose character is impeccable and whose words are worthy of our trust. And your life can be changed and your sins can be forgiven today because of the word of truth. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That means that we must confess that Jesus is the Son of God, Almighty God in human form, the Emmanuel, God with us, that we sing about this season. It means that we trust Jesus as our Savior, depending on his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead alone for our salvation. And it means that we surrender our lives to his authority so that the purpose of our life is to live for him and his glory and not for ourselves. And when we, by faith, trust Jesus as God, Savior, and King, we are assured of the forgiveness of sin. We are granted his life-transforming power, and we are promised we will spend eternity with him. And my friends, whatever experiences you may have had with liars in the church, I want you to be clear. That word of truth is the truth. It's the whole truth. And it's nothing but the truth. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, would convict every lost sinner of the truthfulness of the gospel and move them to repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give those who make that decision boldness to come forward after the service and speak to one of our church leaders here at the front. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for any time we have ever distorted the truth, bent the truth, told half-truths that were really whole lies that you will make us people characterized by absolute integrity so that especially when we talk about what matters most, our testimony will be credible. In Jesus' name.